Good afternoon. This is Friday, February 5th, and I'm uh, recording the first of my weekly key concepts lectures on the material that I'm going to be covering in next week's classes. Uh, today's topics will be Rule 8.3, Reporting Professional Misconduct, Rules 5.1, 5.2, and 5.3, covering responsibilities and liabilities of supervisory and subordinate lawyers, and then the related concepts of competence, malpractice, and ineffective assistance of counsel. And finally, a brief look at the law regarding how a lawyer-client relationship is formed. So let's start with rule 8.3. A lawyer who knows that another lawyer has committed professional misconduct in certain circumstances has a duty to report that misconduct. So let's look at the details. Section A says, a lawyer who knows that another lawyer has committed a violation of the rules of professional conduct that raises a substantial question as to that lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as a lawyer in other respects shall inform the appropriate professional authority. So that, as you can see on the screen here, that uh, section includes at least three important words that we need to look at in detail. First of all, know, knowing or knowledge. This is an important concept in a number of places throughout the rules. What does it mean to know something? How certain do you have to be before you've triggered that uh, requirement of knowledge? So the, con the comments tell us that knowledge under this section requires more than mere suspicion. Uh, that's not enough to require you to report. And remember that this rule, what this rule does is requires someone who knows that another lawyer has committed a violation, requires them to go to the uh, disciplinary committee and report that lawyer. And that can be hard to do. Uh, there are all kinds of repercussions that might come from that. So it, it's a duty, but it's a somewhat limited duty. So it's limited to where the lawyer has more than a mere suspicion where in fact, uh, the standard is where a reasonable lawyer in the circumstances would have a firm opinion that it's more likely than not than the that the conduct in question actually occurred. So if you know something, if, it, if you would have a firm belief that uh, it's more than, more than not likely, more likely than not that the conduct occurred. Secondly, it's only violations that raise a substantial question as to the other lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness. So what is so that means not every minor violation needs to be reported. Substantial questions need to be reported. And the comment, comment three says, this rule limits the reporting obligation to those offenses that a self-regulating profession must vigorously endeavor to prevent. So what kinds of violations sort of strike at the heart of what, what it means to be a lawyer. And uh, the comment goes on that the term substantial refers to the seriousness of the possible offense, not the amount of evidence that you have. So if it's a, if it's a serious offense, then it raises a serious question about honesty and so on. Finally, if those first two uh, terms are met, then the lawyer has to report 
the other lawyer's conduct to the appropriate professional authority. And that, or in most cases, means the uh, relevant bar disciplinary agency. Uh, in New York, in Buffalo here would be the seventh department judicial district in downtown Buffalo. Um, and that's hard, again, that's hard to do because you're, you're, you're ratting on another lawyer. So are there ways, are there ways around that? Can a lawyer, for instance, say you're an associate in a law firm and you know that a partner in the firm has been engaging in professional misconduct. Is it enough if you simply report that associate to a partner in the firm? Well, probably not. Um, the, this is a, a strict duty to report to the professional agent, uh, reporting agent, disciplinary agency. It may be that it would be sufficient to report to a partner in the firm if the partner, the firm then goes on to take remedial action to stop or remedy the misconduct, and then the, the firm itself informs the bar disciplinary agency. They have to be informed. Um, so it's not easy to get out of this obligation. Also, if the lawyer does report to a partner in the firm and the firm does not take action, the associate has not fulfilled the duty to report. Okay. Section B simply sort of uh, repeats this obligation with respect to ju judicial misconduct. So if you know that a law, a judge has committed a violation of the rules of judicial conduct that raises a substantial question as to the judge's fitness, then you have to inf inform the appropriate, appropriate judicial conduct uh, agency. Finally, section C, I'm sorry, Section C tells us there are certain kinds of uh, misconduct that do not need to be reported. In other words, if you have to protect client confidentiality. So this rule does not require disclosure of something that is protected by rule 1.6 on confidentiality, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, or by a, a lawyer or judge participating in an approved lawyer's assistance program. So what is a lawyer's assistance program? Most, most uh, bar associations have one. Uh, here in uh, New York State has something called the Lawyer-to-Lawyer uh, -lawyer Wellbeing Roundtable, which is sort of a, a peer support group for lawyers who may uh, be suffering from uh, uh, or dealing with substance abuse or mental health problems. We want lawyers to be able to deal with those, to discuss those issues and overcome them, deal with them. So in order to encourage that, we protect those discussions uh, with confidentiality. When would re reporting uh, require disclosure of confidential information, confidential client information? Typically, this would occur when more than one lawyer in a firm, maybe lawyers in different firms working in a team, um, but somebody in that firm or that team is committing misconduct and other lawyers in that firm or that team know about it. Uh, in that case, uh, we're uh, reporting that misconduct to the disciplinary agency may require that you disclose some client confidences. Um, so this rule does not require that. You're not required to report if it's, if it's confidential. However, of course, you can ask the client for permission to report it and the client can waive confidentiality. 
But if they don't, uh, you are excused from reporting it because of the obligation to protect client confidences. Before we, uh, so let me just sort of summarize this rule again, um, reporting misconduct. One kind of question that I might ask on an exam would be uh, something like this. There's a fact situation and then does lawyer A have a duty to report any conduct by lawyer B? So if you see a question like that, there's two parts to it, right? First question is, did lawyer B violate any ethical duties? So you have to analyze the conduct described in the fact situation and see, did that lawyer commit any violations? Then you have to uh, look at it again and ask whether any of those violations were of the kind that 8.3 requires reporting. So again, does it require, or it, does it raise a substantial question as to lawyer B's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness? So I like that kind of question. It's, uh, it requires some real thought. And so you may see one of those on the midterm or the final. Sections 5.1, five, 5.2, five, and 5.3 go together. And this has to do with the relationship of supervision and liability between partners and firms or, or a lawyer who supervises another lawyer or an associate lawyer. So 5.1 looks at the uh, sort of top-down responsibilities, responsibilities of a partner or a supervisory lawyer. Section A says, a partner in a law firm and a lawyer who individually or together with other lawyers possesses co comparable managerial authority in a law firm shall make reasonable efforts to ensure that the firm has, in effect, measures giving reasonable assurance that all lawyers in the firm conform to the rules of professional conduct. A partner in a law firm with, well, first of all, what is a law firm? The uh, terminology section in the rules defines a, a law firm as broader than a traditional law firm. It would include like a government agency, uh, uh, a, prosecu a, a prosecuting attorney's office or a public defender's office, and so on. So those and those sorts of organizations do not have partners. They have other kinds of leadership. So this first half of the sentence is, is including all of those people in, in that kind of leadership position, either a partner in a law firm or a lawyer who, with other lawyers or individually, possesses the similar authority to a partner in a law firm. So those people have to make reasonable efforts to ensure that the firm has, in effect, measures giving reasonable assurance that all lawyers in the firm conform to the rules of professional conduct. So. That means law partners in the firm have to make sure that there are systems in place to prevent ethical failures, such as a conflicts checking system to avoid conflicts of interest, uh, a system for managing client funds so there's no misappropriation or commingling of funds, as it's called, things like a, a tickler system to keep track of important filing deadlines so lawyers don't miss a deadline and that sort of thing. So that sort of goes with the partner, the law firm partner's sort of managerial responsibility to make sure that the law firm runs properly. Uh, section B um, applies that same sort of uh, authority to people below the level of, uh, of partner or can even be a partner. But this, this uh, 
Section B says a lawyer having direct supervisory authority over another lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to ensure that the other lawyer conforms to the rules of professional conduct. So section B is a little more hands-on responsibility. If section A says the uh, partners uh, uh, fulfill their duty by making sure that there are good systems in place to prevent uh, ethical problems, uh, section B says that a lawyer who's directly supervises another lawyer, and that may include a partner. So a lawyer or a partner having direct supervisory authority over another has to make reasonable efforts to make sure that the other lawyer conforms to the rules. So not just having systems in place, but actually monitoring the behavior of that, that lawyer that they're supervising. So A and B both together uh, impose duties on people of lawyers in authority within a law firm or a law firm organization, imposes a duty on them to prevent ethical problems, to uh, do everything they can to make sure that they don't happen. Section C is a little different. Section C imposes liability uh, on, on another, uh, on a lawyer if the supervised lawyer commits a violation. So section C says, a lawyer shall be responsible for another lawyer's violation of the rules if the lawyer orders or ratifies the conduct involved, right, and uh, either orders and or knows about it and ratifies it, or if the lawyer is a partner or has comparable managerial authority, so let's say partner, or has direct supervisory authority, either of those positions, that lawyer knows of the conduct of the other uh, misperforming uh, mis, uh, lawyer and uh, fails to take reasonable remedial action. So if A and B require doing things to prevent, uh, impose a duty on the supervising attorneys to try to prevent conduct, uh, that violates the rules. Section C makes those same supervisory lawyers liable to liable for discipline, just the same as the lawyer they supervise or fail to supervise. 5.3 basically says the same thing as 5.1, but it applies to conduct of non-attorney uh, assistants. Uh, a, a partner is, or a lawyer is vi liable for violations of uh, an assistant if they, the, the, a lawyer cannot violate the rules through the conduct of another, cannot direct, direct another person, such as a, uh, an investigator or a legal secretary or so on, cannot ask them to do something that the lawyer could not do under the rules. So 5.3 covers that situation. 5.2, uh, talks about the other side of the, of the relationship, the, the subordinate lawyer, the one who's being supervised. And section A says, a lawyer is bound by the rules of professional conduct, notwithstanding that the lawyer acted at the direction of another person. In other words, I was only following orders is not an excuse. A subordinate lawyer is responsible for making their own ethical decisions, despite what another lawyer told them to do. Section B says, a subordinate lawyer does not violate the rules of professional conduct. This is, uh, it's called a safe, it's often called a safe harbor provision. 
right? Section B says a subordinate lawyer does not violate the rules of professional conduct if that lawyer acts in accordance with a supervisory lawyer's reasonable resolution of an arguable question of professional duty. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, so that means that despite section A, which says that you know, a supervisor, a, a lawyer who is supervised and supervised badly is still responsible for their own misconduct. Section B says uh, the the exception is if it was a if it was an extremely hard question. Essentially, if there was an arguable question of professional duty, which means that, and that's not simply an, a question where you don't know the answer. Uh, lawyers are expected to do to do research in this sort of circumstance. You can't just say, uh, well, I don't know the answer, so I guess it's arguable, so I'll go ahead and do what I choose. That's not how it works. Arguable means that reasonable lawyers could differ on how to handle that question. Maybe it's a question of first impression in your jurisdiction and different jurisdictions have han handled it differently. That's what makes it arguable, that you can actually argue either way. The res but also the supervisor's res resolution must be a reasonable one, must be one that a reasonable lawyer could accept, would, would, uh, would, would uh, see as a reasonable response, even if they might disagree with it, it's not out of the question. So this imposes the duty on the subordinate lawyer in some circumstances to double check the, the lawyer who's supervising them. Um, Maybe And how do you know when to do that? Maybe it just feels wrong. It's hard to say when this duty arises. You don't want to double check your uh, supervisor all the time. So it makes it hard. But what this means is if the supervisory attorney advises you to, something, to do something and they're wrong, not only are you subject to discipline, so is the supervisory attorney. Thing is, this uh, safe harbor probably isn't going to come into uh, into uh, play very often, because if something, if a lawyer commits conduct that raises an arguable question of professional duty, it's unlikely that uh, disciplinary charges are going to be filed, or if they are, they're not likely to be punished severely. Because if it's an arguable question, it's hard to say that a lawyer failed their ethical conduct, their ethical duty, by making a reasonable choice as to which way to go. So, in respect to these rules that we've just talked about, for Monday's class, in addition to problem 2.3, which we'll be working on in small groups, I want you also to uh, read and be prepared to discuss problem 2 2 about exculpatory evidence. We'll spend a little time talking about that one as well. Now, I'm going to take these, uh, do a, just a very cursory overview of these ideas, competence, malpractice, and ineffective assistance of counsel, just sort of put them in perspective. So as you're reading through them, you know, sort of know where it's going, what direction this is taking you in. So, Although the casebook talks about malpractice first, I'm going to talk about the, the ethical rule first, simply because we've been talking about ethical rules. Okay, rule 1.1 is the, the first rule in the model rules 
and it's the, the duty of competence. And it says that a lawyer shall provide competent representation to a client. Competent representation requires the legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. Okay, first of all, it says shall. It's not should. Shall makes it mandatory. A lawyer has to provide competent res representation to a client. Now, what does competent mean? Competent is often, the word competence in ordinary usage is, can be sort of a low bar, right? Well, someone did a competent job. The duty of competence for a lawyer, remember, you're a lawyer, you're a member of a profession and you are representing another person who's putting their, uh, maybe their livelihood or their life in your hands. So competence is a relatively high bar. It's, it's, a, it's a high standard that lawyers are expected to meet. And that can require the uh, necessary legal knowledge, which you may have learned in school or through practice and experience, um, or maybe through research. You can supplement your knowledge by doing research. In addition to skill, which you develop over time, thoroughness and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. So it may be that you're not expected to become an expert in every matter that you address, but you need to be reasonably prepared, competent to do the job. What does this mean? Uh, competence is an ethical duty. And again, what happens if you fail the duty of competence? Well, again, you're subject to disciplinary action. We've talked about all the different uh, ranges of disciplinary action that can be. And we've also talked about the fact that uh, clients uh, may be less inclined to file such a claim because they basically get nothing from it. They don't get any uh, recompense from filing a, a disciplinary com complaint. That's what malpractice claims do. So malpractice is a civil claim by a client in court against the lawyer for damages resulting from some harm done by the lawyer. So like any civil claim for damages, malpractice is, uh, some states call it a tort, some states treat it as more of a contract action, doesn't really matter uh, for our purposes, but it's malpractice uh, a claim allows a, lawyer, a client who's been harmed by their lawyer's failure to go against that lawyer and get damages. So there are three elements to proving malpractice. First of all, that the lawyer owed a duty to the plaintiff. Typically that means, uh, well, a lawyer always has a duty to their client, right? In some instances, there may be a duty to a third party, such as an insurer. Sometimes a uh, an, insured, an insurance company can um, bring a suit against, uh, for malpractice against the lawyer if, they fa if the lawyer fails and cost the insurance company more than they, they should have. Could also be a, a third party beneficiary of some sort, but in most cases, it's uh, a, a, a client. And in that case, uh, this first element is easily shown. Secondly, uh, the plaintiff has to show that the lawyer failed to exercise the competence and diligence normally exercised by lawyers in similar circumstances. In other words, that the lawyer failed to live up to the standard of what, or what reasonably competent lawyers would do in that circumstance. And that usually means bringing in expert testimony, bringing in other lawyers who can testify as to whether 
the lawyer in question did an adequate job or if they failed. That's one reason it can be hard to bring these cases because maybe lawyers, sometimes lawyers are reluctant to testify against each other. But that's simply an evidentiary matter. And finally, there has to be a breach of duty. And finally, the client, the plaintiff has to show that that breach of duty by the lawyer caused harm to the plaintiff. And cause, the causation here is but for, but for causation, that if the lawyer had not failed in the way they did, the client would have prevailed, or at least would have not been harmed. But in, mo in many states, it requires actual uh, uh, actually prevailing in the lower in the original case. What that means is usually to bring a legal malpractice claim, there, there's a portion of the trial that's called the uh, sort of a case within a case in which the client claiming malpractice has to bring forth the evidence or their lawyer, their new lawyer, has to uh, produce evidence to show that they could have won the case, but didn't. The remedy here is damages. So this is how a lawyer, uh, uh, an injured plaintiff, uh, injured client gets money from the lawyer who failed them. And then next is ineffective assistance of counsel, which is a very different matter. This is a constitutional rights matter. This is a violation of the Sixth Amendment. Uh, in this case, uh, if a, law, a, a client, a criminal defendant has received ineffective assistance of counsel, they don't get money for that. There may or may not be grounds for uh, an ethical complaint. The standards are different. So to show ineffective assistance, uh, the Strickland case in the case book uh, set forth a two-part, two-pronged test. Then the defendant has to show that the lawyer's errors were so serious that counsel was not functioning as the counsel guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment. In other words, that at least at key points in the trial, the lawyer was acting as if he wasn't even there, right? Has to be really serious errors before the, uh, the courts will grant the remedy of, of, of finding ineffective assistance of counsel. And in addition to that, the defendant has to show a reasonable probability that but for the counsel's unprofessional efforts, the result of the proceeding would have been different. different. And in almost all cases, that means that the client, the criminal defendant who, who was convicted because of the lawyer's poor performance, ineffective assistance, that that client would have been acquitted, not simply uh, received a lower sentence or something like that. So it's a very, this is a very high bar. Uh, and the, the remedy in this case, if, you, if the client can show ineffective assistance, the remedy is they get a new trial, right? And maybe they'll win that time, right? And now certainly uh, all three of these uh, claims can be brought against the same lawyer. A lawyer who, uh, a claim, uh, say a defendant is, uh, brings a claim for ineffective assistance and wins that claim. They may also choose to go against that lawyer from our practice and get damages. And they may also choose to file a grievance complaint, a disciplinary complaint against that lawyer and maybe hope to get that lawyer disbarred. They can all happen. 
The last part I want to talk about is, and this very briefly, because we'll talk about the formation of a lawyer-client relationship in class. And I want to spend some time on that. And so I want you to be read the Togstad case. It's a very important case. I want you to read that carefully and be prepared to discuss it in class. And as you're reading it, think about whether you agree with the result and what the attorney in the case, Attorney Miller, should have done to avoid liability. So these are the key points that we're going to be go over, going over next week. And um, get prepared, read your, read your material for Monday, and I'll see you next week.